0: Okay, our passage uh, today, we're going to pick up the last verse of uh, chapter 9 of Acts, verse 31, and then uh, carry on to the end of the chapter. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, fire up your apps, whatever you've got, and, uh, and track along with me, if you will. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him. Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner.
1: Thank you, Craig. Last week, we looked at probably, I, I think maybe one of the most underrated verses, in all of Acts. It jumped out off the page to me. It's just a summary statement by Luke. He does that a number of times as he progresses through the narrative, summarizing the work of God. Uh, many years have passed now since Pentecost. But here's the summary statement. Verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. As we've often said, this is a narrative it is a description of what happened it's not a prescription of what must always happen but as we seek to resonate with the church the early church we are in the inheritance we are part of the same legacy is it not true that we pray these similar prayers that we should for peace for strength for the multiplication and expansion of God's kingdom And then we would rightly ask, are we consistently and faithfully walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? This is not a recipe, but it's a convicting reminder to us. Do we even know what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Those two are perfectly unified. They are not... Distinct or separate things. And so we prayed coming off of last Sunday these similar prayers. Lord, build us up. Your work, O Lord. Multiply it. Bring Your peace, Lord. And we continued that prayer through the evening as we came together at the Pentecost gathering. That was a special time thanks to the youth who leaned in and helped in the the worship, the music, and the prayers that we offered along these themes, seeking the Lord together. We're not promised peace. This was a description of a very special time. In the midst of persecution and turmoil, God brought his peace. In fact, in many ways, the persecution continued. And yet Luke's statement is peace was widespread. How amazing is that and how much do we need to hear that same message in the midst of trial or persecution that God's peace can be known. Paul will speak of a peace that transcends understanding. So we pray for that. We ask for that. We long for it in a global sense or in a regional sense or in a national sense. And we're reminded on this Memorial Day weekend and thank you for those who have served, Corey, and for others who have served faithfully We're reminded of the desire for peace, the longing for peace, and those that have sacrificed over over years for it. But we are not promised that. We are promised an internal peace. Paul says this peace that transcends understanding will guard our hearts. What is our faithful response? Do we walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? And so really our prayer last week was, Lord, teach us more of that. Help us, Lord, but teach us of that, to know what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking that we continue that prayer and we we move forward throughout the next hundred days or ninety two days now as we move to this hundred days of prayer effort. We pray the revival, that God revive us. It begins here. We prayed Habakkuk 3 2. Lord, I have heard the report of you, I've heard of your work. O Lord, in Your work I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it, Lord. We pray revival. In the midst of the years, make it known. If Christ's redemption is going to sweep across a town, a region, or a nation, it's going to begin with that prayer. Lord, revive me. Revive us. When we pray for revival, we're not praying for lost people to be saved. That's an outflow of the revival prayer of revive this heart. Revive your church, Lord. Revive believers. We pray restoration. We pray redemption to be found in our communities, in our neighbors, in our loved ones. But we pray revival for God's people. We pray that for us. I invite again on Tuesday mornings, give a plug for the men's meeting that's coming to an end here at the end of June, so there's a few more weeks to jump in. That's been one of our consistent prayers. Paul says in Ephesians 5, that's what we've been studying here this, uh, this winter spring, Ephesians 5, 14, awake, arise, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so we're praying that same kind of revival prayer for us. Lord, awaken me, awaken me, what's dead in me that must arise? And so I think it's God's perfect timing again that here we are, Acts 9, and we see his incredible revival happening to two of his disciples that then leads to a widespread proclamation of the gospel and to many putting their faith into Jesus. Supernatural revival takes place in Acts 9. At first, it seems. A bit out of place, because we, we've seen now the ministry, uh, the work of God in Paul's life, and we're thinking the ministry of Paul is going to just continue now for the rest of Acts. Instead, he withdraws and goes to Tarsus for a time of equipping and training, and Peter comes back on the scene. And so Peter's been moving about, likely uh, encouraging the churches, encouraging believers who have scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, and we have a couple testimonies of the work that God did through Peter, and I think that's probably Luke's primary message here, as Acts 10 will be this pivotal moment when the gospel truly breaks free and goes to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth, and the rest of Acts will follow that theme as Paul will come back on the scene and we see the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem, not just from Jerusalem out geographically, but from Jerusalem, which represented Israel expansively now to all peoples. To all peoples. And I think that's Luke's primary purpose in showing us the way that the gospel is moving in power and reminding everyone, Jews specifically, that the gospel is for all peoples. This is the same Jesus, the same gospel, the same power, the same Holy Spirit, the same redemption for all peoples. And he shows us that in the way it moves out with the same kind of reminiscent force as we saw at the beginning of Acts when Peter and John went to the temple and and had a lame man there and they met him and the Spirit healed him and allowed him to walk. So it's reminiscent of that. This happens again here with Aeneas. It's reminiscent of Jesus and his ministry. Jesus went about befriending Gentiles. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. And so nothing is new, ultimately. And so it was, it's a reminder of what is normative for the movement of God's people in the power of the Spirit. None of it should be a surprise. The question is, is it surprising to us today? Is it normative for us today to see the power of the Spirit work in accordance with the proclamation of the Gospel Or did this end at this age with the apostles? Paul would later write something to the effect of this unifying message of the Gospel. Ephesians 4, verse 4 and following. He says, There is one body and there is one Spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying this, there's one Gospel. There's this one Jesus. One source of life and healing and power. Lest there be confusion that there's a division. That there's a greater than. That the people of Israel, the Jews, are the, the true beloved of God. They are a special part of God's story that He's writing. A representative of the love and family and a community devoted and set apart. But God is now adopting the world and calling it to himself. So this is the reminder that Peter gives, that Luke is giving, and that Paul would later write about. And we have to be reminded that this is likely Luke's primary message. We've said it many times now through this series, that he is describing from his perspective, the only thing that he knows is that this is what the church looks like. It's so soon after the ministry of Jesus... And he's been ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come in power, giving birth to the church. This is what it looks like. This is the normal Christian life. That's the description. The Bible does not teach an apostolic age. It teaches a church age. The apostles had a very special role. Those that walked with Jesus, heard from him, led the church, advanced the church, wrote the scriptures... I'm not at all saying there wasn't a very special unique role in that season and when those who walked with Jesus died something changed there was no more direct link witness that's all true but the bible describes one age a church age from the com- the begins was consummated at the coming of the holy spirit on that first pentecost first christian pentecost and will not conclude until jesus returns that's the age Therefore, we are living in that same age. Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? Are we uncertain about that? We are living in the same age. So as we read Scripture and we hear the testimony, we understand that Luke is writing what is normative. This is simply what it looks like. Now He didn't have the, the length of time and perspective to say, this is a unique way it expresses itself. Neither did Paul. But for them that was a normative experience to see the gospel move in transforming power in people's life along with miracles, healings, signs and wonders that that ministry of Jesus simply continues through the church in the power of the spirit. That is normative. Is it normative for us today? There's kind of been a lot said on those themes in the last 2000 years. So we're going to solve them. This morning, let me say a few words. Healings and miracles should be normative, but they are not quantitative. How can you put a number on it? How can you put a number on God's work? A number seeks to quantify or to limit. The testimony of Acts certainly speaks of for lack of a better word, clusters of miracles. As the Gospel is advancing into these other regions, it says, many were healed and came to know the Lord. Those often go together, those statements. So there's these clusters where we're not given detailed description of what that looked like. And then we have some pretty remarkable, hard not to say these are dramatic type miraculous healings that we encounter. A lame man who's been paralyzed most of his life walking in the next moment in strength and power. A dead woman being raised. These are dramatic, again, for lack of a a better word. And we have to remember that the account of Luke covers decades of time. We're not told that these are the only dramatic type miracles. I think it would be wrong to make that conclusion. But we're also not told the full scope. And so from our perspective, it can seem... What should be normative can seem like quantitatively not the same today for us. And even if healings and miracles were normative, we do know that the raising of the dead was anything but common. The scorecard in the Bible is, from, from our records, Elijah 1, Elisha 1, Peter 1, Paul 1. So they all tied. Jesus, three. Jesus had a part, I would guess, in his own resurrection as the life giver, but that would just take us into a whole different discussion. The point is, on just over one hand, you can count the number of men or women raised from the dead throughout Scripture. doesn't mean only. We can't build arguments from silence or from our own experience. We must build doctrine on the Word of God. Our experience simply brings forth reminders, encouragement of what has been set for us in Scripture. Now I know that there are some here, interact with me for a moment, I'll ask you to raise your hand, who I know that there are some here who have been miraculously healed, physically You've sought the Lord. Some of you sought the Lord and were healed momentarily. Some of you sought the Lord over the course of weeks or months and God healed or saved your life or spared your life. Others of you were prayed for and God healed. You might even say you weren't weren't even seeking. You maybe didn't even believe. But there's no doubt to you that God intervened and healed physically. It may have been sufficient healing in the sense of there's still effects of that illness or that pain but there's a clear moment where God intervened it may have been a temporary healing or it may be holistic no recurrence or sign of that illness if that's true of you and, and, and you believe it 100% would you raise your hand Okay, feel, keep it up. Look around the room. Some of you are in the front. I say twenty-five hands are in the air. You want to ask more about that? Nudge them later. What I want to tell you is that the and give you a, a reminder through the body is that the healing power and presence of Jesus continues, and it is normative. To try to limit it, describe it, or fit it into boxes or categories would be the wrong approach. But in a lifetime, we may be touched once. In a lifetime, we may seek the Lord endlessly and feel that we haven't been touched at all. But I want us to know that in our times today even, because we can hear, we hear testimonies of the Scripture, we read through the accounts, and it's hard not to think, man, that was a different time. It is not happening today. We hear stories of the mission fields where it seems that the healing work of God, the powerful manifestation and presence of God is much more apparent than it is in our midst. And sometimes it's a perspective issue more than anything else. The healing miraculous work of Jesus continues in the power of the Spirit. It is normative, but it's not quantitative. Psalm 1830 says, This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. How do you know the Word is true? How do you know that Scripture is true? By its own testimony, it proves true. What that means is that as we hear God's Word, which teaches and promises His supernatural work continuing, he will prove Himself true. It's not up to us to prove that it is true. We become the recipients of His touch and His work. What we are taught throughout Scripture, encouraged by the experience of our life and the te- or the testimony of others, is that the healing work of God, His supernatural presence with us, continues and is normative though we must not seek to make it quantitative. John Stumbo, he's the president of the alliance now and the U.S. alliance in this season. He's been a friend and a mentor of mine. This was a conversation I had with him, so I'm not sure it's written anywhere, but he said to this effect, we've got to stop telling the Spirit what he can't do, but we better not tell him what he must do. There's a right balance in pursuit of the work of God in our lives and in our midst. It should be said, as we can't, we can't build doctrines off of experience and we have to be careful about perspective because we're so limited, but we can observe. And as we observe the work of a miraculous work of the Spirit in Acts and we observe it in our world, it seems that it is at a higher level. At times when the gospel is going forth and going out light into the darkness, into places that are unreached or have no testimony, no previous testimony, or have no access to the Word of God. It's an observation that seems to be reinforced by perspective and experience, so we hold it loosely. But it makes me wonder if we're coming into a season in this country, especially in a city like Seattle where we will see the quantitative level of miracles, healings, and signs rise if we are faithful to be gospel fluent as we go into places that have no otherwise access to the Scriptures or have never heard or seen. makes me wonder. It gives me hope. Second, second statement. Healings and miracles should be normative, but not without gospel perspective. The greatest miracle, the greatest healing and sign and wonder that God does is the salvation of a sinner, is the regeneration of a heart from dead to alive. That's the greatest work. That's the gospel perspective and that is God's priority. See, a physical healing is nothing compared to the transformation of a heart and a soul. From dead to life. God formed the dust and breathed life into the first man. The raising of Dorcas, even if she had a cold body, was nothing for the power of God. The resurrection power of God. Paul says the same thing. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, completely separate, he'll say elsewhere, completely separated from God, on the outside, with no ability spiritually to enter in, even though we were dead because of our sins, he's made us alive with Christ. Because of what Christ has done, Christ is in us, we too become alive in Him by grace alone. It's by grace alone. And you have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That declaration, that proclamation, that promise is greater, of greater news and more shocking than any physical healing. Than a leg being mended or a back straightened, or cancer removed, is a soul and a heart transformed, made dead to alive. We must have gospel perspective when we come to experience, explore, and pursue the physical healing nature of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, John 11, and He he did it to teach a lesson, Because he could have come and spared Lazarus' life, saved him from death. Also, powerful work, healing work. But he waited and came to teach a powerful lesson to all of us, and specifically this family, Mary and Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved it by calling forth Lazarus. See, ultimately, the healing of Lazarus Lazarus to the joy of of his family. I don't know if it was to the joy of Lazarus if he was pulled from heaven back to earth. That was wonderful. But for all the rest who hear of it, us included, it's a sign that points to a greater reality. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? I'm the author of life, the source of life. That even though you are dead, you can live. That's the gospel. Even though one day your body will die, yet you will live. Do you believe it? Ultimately, his own death and resurrection proved it on even a grander scale. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's how he starts Romans, arguably the greatest testimony, doctrinal testimony and letter ever written. He starts it with the power of Jesus to save. And Paul is not shy about the power of God to heal the supernatural gifts. But it is not the emphasis of his writings. It's the power of God to save, to deliver, to rescue, to redeem, heart, soul, mind. That's the Gospel. And that's the emphasis. Signs pointing to greater realities. If God can heal a body, might He be able to heal a soul? If God can raise the dead, might He be able to raise us up too when we die? And raise our souls to be seated in heaven? They are signs pointing to this greater reality, this greater promise. They should be normative, but let's have gospel perspective C.S. Lewis said these two miracles and Acts and others, others like them, they're miracles of reversal. See, they're signs that show that the effects of sin and the fall are reversed and we're given a glimpse of what heaven looks like. A glimpse on earth of what heaven will be. They're signs pointing to something more and something greater. The power of God is present to heal everyone and every illness and every disease. But things that are commonplace do not elicit wonder and amazement. As we see his power at work at times, wonder and amazement, that's a common theme throughout Acts. Which also reinforces, I should have said it earlier, I think it was there in my notes. It reinforces that the we read it as much more commonplace than they experienced it. Because so much amazement and wonder continued to be experienced as God continued to work. gospel perspective and gospel priority what's most important remember that jesus said he taught this well when the the, his the friends brought the paralyzed man you may remember the story there was a crowd they tried to get to him they had to get up on the roof and dig through and lower him down and jesus looked at this man and clearly they're seeking him for physical healing are they not and he says son your sins are forgiven See, that was, that's always Jesus' priority. And you can almost, I mean, you can almost you hear the grumbling of the Pharisees, or he heard their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're already concerned. That, but certainly the friends would have looked at each other and said, that's, that's not why we came. We thought you had this, a healing power to raise our friend, who we love, up to walk again. So he hears the grumbling. This is Matthew chapter 9. One of the accounts of this story, Matthew chapter 9 verse 5, and Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. See, it becomes a sign to his greater desire and the greater power to heal spiritually, to forgive and cleanse sins. G- or Peter would essentially do the same thing. I love how Peter is, you know, gets, you know, puts a foot in the mouth often. I love how he says to Aeneas, Rise and make your bed. Like, slob, let's go. Make it. That's supposed to be humor. <laughs> if our hope and our expectation is in God's physical healing in this life only, then we're hoping and worshiping the wrong things. We're pursuing the healing instead of the healer, the the giving instead of the giver, the temporary instead of the eternal. And so as we seek and ask for physical healing, which we are told, James teaches that fairly clearly, James 5, Pursue it. Anyone sick, call the elders, seek them to pray over you, anoint you with oil, Jesus heals So we're encouraged, we're told that. But as we seek, if if God says yes and he heals, then we say thank you for reminding us of what heaven will be like. You've given us a glimpse. For the one receiving it, it's great joy. For others hearing of it, it should bring joy and a reminder of what heaven is like. When God says no, at least from our perspective, and I've preached on this before, any "no" is ultimately a "not yet" for those who are believers in Jesus. From our perspective, it's a no." He's saying no, He will not heal this. He's saying, "My grace is sufficient to you. Suck it up." There's compa- much greater compassion, but it's ultimately a "not yet, because one day we will be raised full in full health and fullness of life and body. And so we're reminded and we say, "Thank you, Lord." That this is reminding me that this is not my home and this is not where my hope lies. That one day I am healed in Jesus. That's your promise. Gospel perspective, gospel priority. Healings, miracles, they should be normative, but not without right perspective. They should be normative, but not quantitative. Finally, healings and miracles should be normative, but not prescriptive. Again, as we've said many times, Acts is primarily descriptive, this is what happened, it's not prescriptive, this is what must happen. And not discerning between those two gets us into a whole lot of trouble and error. Not reading scripture, the account from Genesis through and, and saying, is this a narrative? Is this historical account? Is this a description of what God did? Or is this a prescription of what must happen, what we must do, how we must respond, or what He will always do? We've got to discern those things. But that doesn't mean we can't observe and look and say, wow, if this is who God is, my faith needs to grow, or my hope needs to grow. This isn't in my notes, so this is probably taking a risk here, but Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven: for I... Know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a future to prosper you and to give you hope. That is not a promise that every one of us can claim. I'm sorry if you have it on a mug or a bumper sticker or on your fridge. It's not a promise given to you or to me. In context, it's a promise spoken over the people of Israel when they were about to go through something, and we're going through something very difficult, very hard, what God was promising was His plan and His path for a people. But what that promise, don't take it down, don't smash the mugs, what that just understand the context. The promise is a declaration of this is who our God is. He is a God for people. He is a God for future. He is a God who makes promises and keeps them. He is a God who builds up hope And it may not feel like it. It may not feel good in the moment. We might be walking through something very hard, but we have a God who will stay true to his word and is good. So let's just get, let's understand. See, discerning between what is a description and what is given as a promise to claim and hold. Let's be careful. See, if anyone would have advanced the ministry of healing and miracles in a prescriptive way, in do this, not this, pray this way, not this way, uh, it would have been Paul or Peter. And we have their writings in the New Testament, and they don't give us the prescription. Now, Paul doesn't shy away from it. He speaks of all of the gifts and encourages us to use them. But again, the emphasis of Paul's writing, we have much more of his writings than we have of Peter's, But the emphasis of their writing is for sanctification and service. It's for holiness and humility. It's for trust and faith to grow. It's for unity and communion to grow amongst God's people. Uh, Not at all shying away from the supernatural work. And I I would think we would be up for a pretty good rebuke if Peter or Paul were walking into most of our churches and taking a look around and saying, What? Come on. But I still believe their primary message would be on those same themes: holiness, sanctification, trust, obedience, service, humility. They are the one they do not give us the prescription. James is the one that gives us the closest prescription we have in the New Testament, but Peter and Paul, of anyone who are used in miraculous ways again and again, it'd be nice to hear a little bit more about that, Peter Paul. We don't have it this side of eternity. What Paul wants us to know is Ephesians 1.16 and following what he wrote to the church in Ephesus, a Gentile group of believers, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God here's what he's praying, is pouring his heart out for them. "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him, so that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand, in the heavenly places. He goes on and on. This is a big, long, run-on prayer sentence. But what Paul wants us to know, he wants the church to know, is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in and amongst us and in us. Why does he want us to know that? So that we would work miracles and healings? Maybe. But that's not what he says here. What he says here is I want you to know this so that you know hope. The hope to which you've been called. Now hope and faith can certainly grow as we see and experience the work of the Spirit in manifest ways. But hope can also grow when God says, trust me. Trust me, you have the Spirit in you so that you may know the hope to which He has called you. And then he goes into chapter 2 and says, so that you might know grace. Amazing grace. That you might know salvation. That you might know oneness with God. Those are the themes that he hammers on. And yet, all of this said, I hope you hear me rightly, that we should be an expectant people. If this same Spirit is living in us and with us, if we live in the same age that began 2,000 years ago, that continues until Jesus comes, then we should be an expectant people that that same Spirit who raised Dorcas, who raised Lazarus, who raised Jairus' daughter, who raised Jesus, that same Spirit in us perhaps would like to do more In us and through us, than what we are giving Him room to do. Are we an expectant people of the work of the Spirit? Without telling Him what to do or what that looks like, but expectant. Do more, Lord. I don't want to miss it. Use me more, Lord, to bring your glory that others would see you and know you more fully. He can bring glory to Himself however He wants. But when he shows up in powerful, healing, redemptive, restorative ways, it's a sign pointing to the greater work that he wants to do. Peter is simply doing what he had seen Jesus, his master, do. In fact, the accounts are so similar. This will be fun to dig into more, so I'll just hi- highlight it. But Mark chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus came in to Jairus' daughter and he said, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi, which means little girl arise. Mark explains that for us because we need that help. And the girl rises from the dead. Peter, when he goes into Dorcas, he says, Tabitha kumi. Tabitha was her name. Talitha meant little girl. Tabitha meant a name meaning gazelle. But it's one letter different than what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. Peter is simply doing what he had heard in that time jesus was by himself how do we have the account jesus talked about it he heard what his master had done he's doing the same thing he's exercising faith he's walking in faith we don't know if he was prescribed or heard from the spirit in that moment to do this to pray that way to expect this woman who has never seen this before with his own eyes go from dead to life in a moment never seen it was he listening to the Spirit who said, go pray right now like this? Or was he walking in faith saying, Jesus is the giver of all life. He is the healer. Perhaps he would like to heal Dorcas. What should I say? Tabitha, Tabitha, Kumi, arise. We don't, we're not told the level of his faith that he exercised, but he's walking in faith. When he said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, Rise up and walk. We aren't told, and I would argue that Peter did not know if he would actually rise in that moment. But what he did know is Jesus Christ heals you. Isaiah 53 promised that. By his wounds, we are healed. It's a present reality. In Jesus, we are healed. That's what Peter is proclaiming. You are healed in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? He knew he did. You are healed. Rise and make your bed. If he couldn't in that moment, would that have meant Peter didn't have enough faith or Aeneas didn't have enough faith, couldn't have? Dorcas had no faith that she was employing when she was raised from the dead. It's not a matter of the depth or amount of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Peter was putting his faith into Jesus who is the giver of life and the healer of all, of all things. By his wounds we are healed. He may have been surprised if Aeneas couldn't walk and said, I don't know why because Jesus Christ heals you. I wonder if we, we do not command the Spirit. Don't hear me say that at all. But I just wonder if our declaration of our promise and our understanding of the work Jesus has done needs to grow. Jesus Christ heals all things. If you are a follower of His, He heals you. Now in in this life, He may consistently say no, from our perspective, not yet. Certainly to Paul, who prayed and pleaded for the thorn to be removed, three times he said, and Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient. Paul would have prayed for Epaphroditus, who was sick and almost died. Philippians chapter 2. Again and again, he would have prayed for him, would he not? That's the right loving thing to do. And yet God was saying no, eventually said yes, but he almost died. You don't think the apostles prayed for Stephen as he was being stoned? Lord, intervene. Stop this. As they gathered his bloodied body, Lord, heal. Raise this man. He's your servant. It would have been out of character for them not to pray those things. Again, we're not told. We have to be careful in building arguments based on silence. God says no more often than we think, even to the apostles, even to the disciples. But they continued to pray in faith and confidence because they knew who Jesus was and what He had done. That's the way I want to pray. I want my faith to grow that I'm surprised as we seek Him in accordance with the Scripture for His healing, for His glory, for our joy when He continues to say no. I want that to be what surprises me, not when He says yes and heals then I'm surprised. I hope I'm amazed and give honor, but I don't want to be shocked because this is normative of the work that He has always done and continues to do and will forever do. As we come to the table today, brothers, sisters, let's be reminded, As that's why we do, as we're reminded of what Christ has done, we are healed. We are healed in Him and He lives in us. We may not be physically healed today. That's not the promise. We are healed eternally. That's the promise. That your hope would build. If you need specific prayer, if this is another, you've sought it many times, we would love to pray for you. Have oil to anoint. Craig is here. The elders would love to pray over you and anoint you with oil. If there's something physically that you are seeking healing for, we can do so as we sing. It can get kind of loud and be hard to hear, I can but I can yell prayers. Or we can wait till after if you'd like to linger, come and just ask us to pray over you after the service. Or sometime this week. Call the elders of the church so they can come and pray. It's nothing in us. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's not our righteousness, that's Christ's righteousness. But we can pray in accordance with his promise. And maybe some of you have never sought healing prayer for something that you're just you've just kind of dealt with. That's wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus, seek it. Let him say no or not yet. Maybe he'll say yes today. So please be responsive. And if you'd like to just pray and intercede on behalf of another who's not seeking the Lord's healing, we're encouraged by this passage. Dorcas didn't ask for it. Her loved ones came and brought brought Peter, called Peter, come, come, and they interceded on her behalf. And God intervened. And so we would love to pray for you in that way too. Eric, team, why don't you guys come and be ready to lead us. This table is open for all who are followers of Jesus. Even if today in your heart being stirred is, I'm following the wrong person, the wrong thing, the wrong pursuit. I want to follow Jesus. I don't have all the answers, but I need Jesus. This table is open to you. It's a way to walk and move and come and receive and give testimony to the work that God has done. As we pass the offering bags, that's a chance to engage in the work that God is doing, participating faithfully, generously, sacrificially. So respond in that way. As we sing, let them be prayers. Not just words, but prayers that we sing and offer to the Lord. And again, if you need prayer and don't want to wait till after service, Craig and I will be here. Come find us. And we would love to pray over you. Shout prayers. It'll be good. Let me pray for us right now. We'll be ready to lead in response. Lord, we thank you for all the joy we've had today celebrating new life. These new shoots, these little ones, but also the new life in Jesus that we experience and have experienced. Remind us again today, even now, as we respond to Your promise, Your Word, Your Gospel. You are the life giver and You've come to give life abundantly. Thank You for that reminder. And many here are still seeking and longing for a physical healing touch. Thank you for the reminder of how how many you have touched here in a miraculous way, saved life, healed, spared. And I pray you continue to do that. We know it is normative. It is who you are. Grow our faith when you heal. Grow our faith when you say not yet. Grow us, Lord, all for your glory. All for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.